This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me coming to you semi-live, as you know, from my house in Brooklyn. As you also probably know, Recode specializes in live events. And of course, as you know, we're not gonna do any live events in person anytime soon, but we didn't wanna stop having live interviews with audience participation, which is why I'm very excited to tell you that we are doing something new in the near future, Recode Media at Home. This is a live interview. You might even call it a live podcast with a chance for the audience to ask their own questions. We're going to kick this off on Thursday, May 7th. I'll be interviewing SoundCloud CEO, Carrie Trainer about how he's running that global business, how he's remaking it on the fly, how the pandemic has had to sort of uh, alter his plans. It'll be a good conversation. You can join. It is free. If you want to come, uh, go to events.recode.net and you can RSVP there. Just go to the Recode site. You'll see a you'll see a you'll see a banner for it. You're smart. You listen to Recode Media. You will get this. Okay, on to this week's show. It is a good one. I'm very excited uh, to talk with Greg Daniels. He is the creator of The Office or co-creator of The Office and a million other TV shows that you have watched. He has two new streaming shows coming to you. Uh, one is on Amazon, coming on May 1st. It's called Upload. It's kind of his dream project, as he describes it. Um, I'll let him describe it more in detail. He also has a show coming on Netflix at the end of the month. It's called Space Force with Steve Carell. Uh, so this is a cool conversation. We get to talk about what it's like to make TV, how it's different to make streaming, um, maybe some of the differences between a Netflix show and an Amazon show, what it's like to make a show about the future that comes out during the middle of a pandemic. It is all good stuff. I'm psyched to share it with you. Also psyched that we have Craig Jenkins coming on from Vulture to talk about the state of the music business and how the concert business has now moved over to Instagram. Um, the cool part of that is there's lots of ways to watch really interesting live music for free. The bad news is if you're a performer, that doesn't help you pay your rent. That is also a good conversation and I'm glad Craig got on the internet with us to talk about that. Okay, here we go with Greg Daniels. I'm speaking via Zoom to Greg Daniels. I don't even know where Greg is. I'm guessing he's in Los Angeles. That's right. I'm in Los Angeles. Yep. Nice to meet you. I was saying before, we were supposed to meet in Austin last month at South by Southwest, so you could tell us about Upload. You're one of two new shows coming out this month, but this one's coming out on Amazon. Um, that didn't happen, so we're doing, we're doing this instead. Well, I was excited that uh, you were going to, I think, moderate a whole panel for us, right? That was the idea. This is less good because um, I only get you, but I'll, I will take it. How's your, how's your virtual pandemic junket going? Uh, it's a little weird, you know, it's a little weird. But um, on the other hand, uh, there are some advantages. I can, you know, go make myself some food in between things uh, in my own kitchen. So that's good. And you don't have assistance to, to order around or, or, or get in the way, either depending on how you feel about assistance. Uh, yes, I have children who are, can easily come in and out. And if you hear something weird in the background, that's going to be them probably. Greg, I, I am familiar with this, with this phenomenon. And, and so are Recode Media listeners. They've, uh, one of my kids came in during a Jeffrey Katzenberg podcast a couple of weeks ago. That was good. Um, well, I want to explain what Upload is, but just to set the table, um, if you have watched TV in the last, what, 20 years, you've seen something Greg has made. You've worked on SNL, The Simpsons, you helped create uh, King of the Hill, you created The American Office, Parks and Rec. Have I hit the highlights? Uh, that's pretty much it. Yeah. I mean, apart from that, uh, I have 
you know, a freelance episode of Seinfeld and then you're pretty much out of my credits. So. Okay, so we've, we've got your credits. So again, if you have watched TV, if you have streamed something on Netflix or Hulu, Greg probably had a hand in it. Uh, and now again, he's got this show called Upload. It's on Amazon, so we'll talk about that briefly. Then I want to talk to you about, about media in general, how you're thinking about making it. Do we call Upload a, a dystopian comedy because it's set in the future? Um, well, you know, I told all of the uh, crew members when I was making it that it wasn't dystopian and it wasn't utopian, that it had to be kind of middletopian. And for me, as somebody who has this comedy background, when I think about the future, um, to me, the, the striking point is how much promise all these new technical technological inventions have, and yet how the the law of unintended consequences always comes into play and there's negatives that you didn't hear about in the beginning and glitches and problems and your privacy is being sold and you're being excessively monetized and at the end of the day you might go huh i don't know was that a good thing was i mean i liked being in touch with my high school friends but uh you know, also it destroyed democracy and journalism. So, so there's some cons. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's so at the show you've got it's it's set in what 2033, I think, if I did my if yes. I was looking correctly. Um, so it kind of looks like now there's there's Red Hook. Uh, I noticed. Uh, although you guys say it's Dumbo, but it's it's Red Hook. Um, there's self driving cars. I think Apple is still around. Um, there are some new companies, and the main idea is when you die, Panera you can, Bread has gotten very big. Panera is very big. Bought a lot of tech companies for some. Bloomingdale's is now a bodega. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the most important thing is that you can uh, upload your consciousness when you die, and that's yes. that's the premise of the show. And then things go awry. Yeah, all the big tech companies that now have things like Alexa and Siri in the future have these very elaborate virtual reality luxury hotels, and some of the floors are for people to visit in VR gear and just have vacations. And then other floors are dedicated to people who their entire being is living there in their avatar because they were uploaded. Yeah. So uh, you work with Mike Judge at King of the Hill. He made Silicon Valley. I remember when that show came out, I remember asking him, like, how do you parody something that seems so sort of out of step with the rest of the world already? He sort of shrugged. Um, and I have a different version of that question for you, which is how do you balance all right, I want to extend what looks like now into the future. I want to make it, I want to sort of extrapolate. But I also, like, if you watch the show, you're not going to spend a ton of time trying to figure out how the tech works. A lot of this stuff looks familiar. There's self-driving cars. You can imagine what that looks like. Um, you know, at least the stuff I've seen there, you're not going deep, deep, deep into space. And how do you balance, like, familiarity versus this is what I think we're going to look like in a couple decades? Well, you know, I think the, that a good science fiction show or a good science fiction is about the present. And so the future is a uh, very near future. And I did a lot of research at the Consumer Electronics Show uh, of the last few years about what is actually coming in terms of 3D printing, driverless. I was going to say a lot, of, a lot of Asian people in drinking with you into the CES show, but... Oh, I didn't go in person. I did. Ah, I did research. okay, I good, better. I, yeah, it's an expensive ticket. But, you know, the people summarize all the good inventions and stuff. So uh, a lot of the future stuff is basically things that exist and then, you know, uh, made more widespread. So yeah. in my in my version, uh, 3D printing, which exists, is used for all food production. And you have fat cartridges and you just print recipes from celebrity chefs. And so to me, what's really fun about that is... Uh, you know, I'm, I'll take all that in and then just say that's the feature of the world. 
And it's a world that people haven't written a lot of comedy about because it's the world 10 years from now, as opposed to like, you know, a suburban family's living room, which people have written a million hours of comedy about. So there's a, a fun feeling of being the first to do jokes about what it's like to be in a self-driving car and have to pick whether you're going to do protect occupant or protect pedestrian, things like that. I mean, there's lots of people who have played around with the future and comedy, right? And the thing that stuck in my head is Sleeper. Um, but that's a very yeah, old I was, reference. I, I definitely was thinking about Sleeper. All right, yeah. good. You and I are on the same the same page. Uh, were there other sort of comedic touchstones or just science fiction touchstones? You thought, oh, I, I, they got that right, or I want to I want to get that right, or you know what, I want to steer away from Blade Runner or Star Wars uh, or Star well, Trek. Well, some of them, like Blade Runner, is pretty heavy. I mean, I loved her mm -hmm. and uh, uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Yep. Uh, those two, in terms of tone, were like things I really respect and. Um, uh, and then I guess Ex Machina is another mm -hmm. great one, I think. Holds up really nine. well. Yeah. 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 Both of them do. So uh, that's the kind of sci-fi that I, I really like. And then I also um, I also was inspired by Harry Potter, which is just, uh, you know, so colorful. And and you 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 kind of get very engaged in the relatable stories really quickly. And that was also the other thing I was trying to do was that, yes, there's all this great world building. But, uh, you know, ultimately it's about Nathan, it's about Nora, it's about the people that they run into and they're trying to, you know, figure it out, their lives, figure it out. Yeah, yeah. The first scene, uh, there's a quick little joke and then you cut to a subway. Um, and the first thing that I saw in the subway is someone wearing a face mask and it yeah, looks like it's, it's augmented in some way. And it, it is jarring uh, when you look at it in April 2020. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the weird things, I think, is that. I've been working on the show for years and years and there's a lot of research behind it. And so for the costume designer, we were talking about, you know, what, what are people going to be wearing in the future? And one of the premises is that the environment's getting worse and worse. And that's one of the motivations for them to, to code these beautiful digital environments to hang out in because the actual environment's not so great. And so we, you know, we had thoughts about the architecture and a hotter, climate challenged, more polluted world that they live in, you know, but then now you see it and you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> even in, even in 2033, there's people worrying about, you know, face masks. I mean, so you don't spell out, at least in the, the episodes I've seen, like the climate is very bad and that's why you're wearing a face mask. You sort of drop stuff in and people either have to figure it out or just sort of nod their head and go, I guess that makes sense. Like, I like that. You're not spending a lot of time extrapolating because this, we are doing that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of work went into thinking it all out. And the show is like the tip of the iceberg and there's other stuff. And sometimes it's just stuff you see in passing. And for instance, on that subway scene that you're talking about, uh, there's elaborate advertising campaigns and all of the yes. ad things. I don't even know if any of them are on are on uh, camera except for a couple of them. But There's an Apple you know, ad. Upload yeah, different. Yeah. Ap Apple has his own upload. Um and, you know, we also had one about a drone that walks your dog. Uh, there was a whole campaign for that. And the tagline was, now you can sit and stay. And you see the drone walking the dog down the street. So, I mean, there's a lot of like fun stuff in the background. And I'm sure everyone has asked you this, but does launching this show in a pandemic sort of make you rethink what you think the future would like, or even this fictional version of the future would look like? Um... Yeah, I mean, the the show was made before the crisis. And 
I think that, um, you know, I went back to look at it and um, I think that there's aspects that are more poignant now, like Nora's whole um, drive is to get her father to be able to afford to upload her dad so that she can, you know, still be in contact with him, which feels more uh, poignant now. And she's very much a defender of science and she's kind of pushing against people who, who uh, aren't as science uh, literate, you know, mm -hmm. and she's like trying to use science to, to save the people that she loves, which I, again, I feel like sadly very relevant. So I think all the fundamentals are, you know, still applicable and, um, you know, and then you hope that basically people are going to be entertained and can be distracted by the fact that this is, you know, set in the future and is an imaginary world that has a lot of color and comedy in it. And so you hope that maybe that'll be a, a benefit to people who are stuck inside. And then I guess the theme is also so much about using technology like virtual reality to connect with people and just the way we're doing this podcast, mm -hmm. you know, it's like Andy Allo, the actress that plays Nora was pointing out to me, she's um, isolating by herself, how dependent and grateful she is for being able to VC with people. And, uh, you know, and in the, in the show, she's the one using the virtual reality gear to, communicate with Nathan right. Robbie Amell's character. Yeah, there's this there was this immediate within a couple of days, and I think it would have happened anyway, just based the way that the news works and, and pendulum swing, but there was an immediate sort of like, oh, technology may be a really good thing. We've spent the last couple of years complaining yes. about Facebook and Apple and everyone else. And a lot of those complaints are 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 were were accurate and uh and, and genuine. Um but now we thought, oh it turns out it's Maybe actually I will have the Facebook portal machine in my house monitoring <laughs> yeah. me at all times so I can talk to my friends. Well, that's the weirdest part about this is I think also as people are going through different stages of acceptance and grief in terms of being locked up for so long. And so from day to day, your mood is different and uh, it makes it definitely makes it tricky to try and predict how anything is going to be taken by an audience. But Are you planning a second season? Have you thought about it? I'm sure you think about a well, second season. Um, I don't have a second season, mm -hmm. but I have writers that are writing a second season now. But and, when you think so we'll, about we'll, how we'll, it's going to be produced, it's tricky to imagine. Yeah, yeah. I do want to ask you about that. And But will sort of today's reality blend into your 2033 or 2034 if, if you go on with the second season? Uh, well, at least 2034 will have been 12 years or whatever past yeah. this particular moment. So I actually think it's more relevant to the other show that I'm doing, which is set in present day. And then you have to say, well, are they going to acknowledge it? Is it all going to be part of the that's, story or not? That's the Space Force show? That's Netflix? Yeah, that's yeah. Space Force, yeah. So it's a good segue. So you are making a show. I've, I've talked to other folks who had, I talked to someone last fall who had a movie coming out on Netflix and a movie coming out on Amazon. I think you're the first TV person I know making two, two shows concurrently and then the same month. I'm assuming that was not the plan and, and it just sort of worked out that way. Yeah, they're very different. I've been working on Upload in various forms for, you know, crazy amount of time. I, the, the initial idea was when I was the SNL sketch writer trying to think of sketches and during the writer's strike of 2008 i was trying to write it as a book and you know and then i've been in this particular streaming version i sold it at first in 2015 and then the, the version with these actors i cast them in 2017 so we've been working on the show for for quite a long time whereas 
for Space Force, basically Netflix had a meeting with Steve Carell and they said, hey, how about doing a show about this new Space Force? And then he called me and said, what do you think about me in a show about Space Force? And that was a direct uh, riff from Trump? That was Trump announcing a Space Force? Yeah, basically after the announcement, yeah. And someone said, this idea is so dumb, we should make a TV show about it? Uh, I wasn't there, but yeah. the Netflix executive is Blair Fetter. You can always uh, call him and ask him whether he actually used those words. But all I all I basically heard was Steve Carell, Space Force. And I was like, yes, that sounds fun. Yeah. So you said that this was going to, the upload was going to be a streaming show earlier. What was your thing? You've been as successful as anyone can be in conventional TV. Now you're streaming. Um, is that because? because there's something you want to do on streaming that you can't do on TV or just it's an opportunity that arose? Well, no, I think so. I mean, I, I feel like, um, you know, perhaps in the past people might've, uh, gone from TV to the movies or something, but, uh, you know, for me, the experience of, you know, running the office in the final year and getting to have the finale that we had and really making such a wonderful artistic, uh, sort of statement that really was everything that I believed in from a comedy perspective and a storytelling perspective. Uh, when it was over, I, I definitely felt like if I'm going to do another show and work this hard for something else, I wanted to, you know, be something ambitious where I'm, I'm learning something, I'm challenging myself. And, uh, you know, I pitched this, uh, I, when I pitched this, I said it was a philosophical, romantic, comedy, science fiction, murder mystery. And, you know, it's a pretty, there's a lot of genres uh, I'm trying to pull off. And, um, you know, it's supposed to be very filmic. And we have, we had great production designer, great um, cinematographer. And uh, so it, it's definitely, you know, an attempt to uh, stretch uh, so, artistically. So is, is what you're saying that this couldn't have gone on network TV because the uh, the the eight adjectives you used to describe this just don't fit in in a box, or or it could have, but this was easier to do on streaming. I think that at the time that I wanted to do it, that it wouldn't have been on network. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times you have to, you know, place your ideas with a receptive executive who has a mission that matches what you're trying to do, and the people at Amazon. Uh, when I, you know, brought it there, their mission was to do something that was very world building. And they kept talking about doing a five hour movie. And the kind of notes that I got were really thoughtful, sort of almost independent film notes. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they were okay with a really long time frame and an expensive, you know, budget. So <laughs> all those things, I don't know if I would have been able to get that at, at a network. And since I think you started talking about this, right, there's been a wave of super successful TV people going to the Netflixes of the world, mostly Netflix, but in some cases other networks, or, you know, I don't know what you would call an HBO Max or something like that, but there's been a wave of you guys who are super successful on TV and then someone pays you a lot of money to make something on a streaming TV service. Well, there were a lot of deals. There were a Mm -hmm. lot of overall deals. I'm not on an overall deal. I, I have the which is probably why I have one thing at Netflix and one thing at Amazon. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been able to do that, I think, if I was on a deal. Um, at various times in my career, I've been on these these kind of deals. And um, obviously, it's nice to get paid up front. But the problem with that is that the buyer usually doesn't want to hear the idea you're interested in. They want to hear uh, something else because they just feel like, if I'm already paying you, don't bring me your little passion project, you know give me like 10 ideas that you're all 
equally interested in and I'll pick between them. Uh, at least that's been my experience. And I, I can't get excited about 10 ideas at a time. I, it takes me a long time to find a concept that I'm very excited about. So that seems like that'd be a drawback in TV, but again, it seems like it's worked out for you. Well, I mean, you know, I, for every show that got, got on the air, I have a few heartbreaking pilots that, uh, you know, were produced that didn't go anywhere. So I was talking to someone who knows people who work with you and they said, Greg's thing is, I think a lot of people probably think this way, is there's, there's quality and there's popular stuff and I want to make that Venn diagram where there's a cross section and that's, that's my sweet spot I'm aiming at. Are they, am I paraphrasing their paraphrase correctly? Um, I don't know if I've ever said that out loud, but I mean, I, I think that my taste is for some reason pretty uh, popular populist or whatever like the stuff that i like is generally this you know like i'm like hey i'm watching game of thrones you know <laughs> yeah yeah so um, are us yeah, too i mean i was into a lot i mean i'm usually into what a large audience is into which is an advantage like i have a friend who's got much more weird niche taste and i think it's been hard for that person to pitch stuff because they then they have to do a choice between pitching something that they think they'll bring, that'll bring them some success and something that they're passionate about. And, you know, l- luckily for me, uh, when I'm really passionate about something, uh, uh, other people have also, also liked it. So, so you don't have some sort of weird passion project you're going to make in this your 70s. This, this is it. This upload this... is it. This is the one that I, you know, have been, it's not that weird thinking about. Well, I, I don't know. I guess that's good. I, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna take that as a compliment. I do. I, I I'm I'm what well, I'm just me. It's objectively true. You can get your head around it because you know there's a Good. lot of streaming stuff where someone's obviously trying to be, they're trying to do a version of something else they've seen that exists. They do they're doing their version of Breaking Bad and they just want to make it dark or you it extends lots of different ways. This well, seems I've like it could have run TV. places. I've yeah. done a, a really a lot of TV and I. I feel like I had put in 10,000 hours before I got to start King of the Hill. And then I put another 15,000 on King of the Hill and then another like 12,000 on, you know what I mean? On the office. It's mm-hmm. like, I've, and th- th- when you do that many table readings and you've assembled all the cast and all the executives and you read the script out loud and you're suddenly incredibly sensitive to the fact that you're being self-indulgent or that, there is no build in the story and people are mentally getting bored or whatever. Like uh, after hundreds of experiences like that, where, you know, you've disappointed a small room, you, uh, you kind of internalize, (laughs) (laughs) I think you internalize how to hold people's intention. Do you think that making a streaming show that's intended to be delivered to a streaming audience involves, are you writing it in any different way or funny is funny, dramatic is dramatic. It kind of, it works the same way. Uh, I went a little more adult, probably, with mm-hmm. this than a network show. Some near show. nudity. There's, there's some, some nudity. There's some nudity in it. Um, if you look closely, it's funny. I had to. I also directed the first two episodes of this, and so for the first time, I was directing uh, nudity, which uh, turned out to be way more awkward than I thought it was going to be, and uh, embarrassing. And I realized that I, you know, I have stuff to say about people's character and their motivations, but when it comes to actually how people go about that. I'm, you know, been married too long to really participate in a good way. (laughs) (laughs) I gotta leave it there. Um, So you, you made The Office, which was a very successful show on network TV. And 
depending on who you talk to, it may have been more successful on Netflix. Um, it definitely reached it a was, whole new yeah. audience. Yeah. yeah. Um, my, my younger kid has watched every episode. He just turned 10. Um, he only gets about half of it. Did watching the success of The Office on Netflix teach you anything or surprise you in some way? Did you imagine that show would work that way in that venue? Well, the funny thing is that when I was arguing for it to survive on NBC, which was very touch and go in the beginning, I was always saying it's a character comedy. It takes a while for people to accept character comedies because you need to learn the rules of the characters. They're not funny right out of the bat and, you know, right out of the gate. And um, so I always said that, but part of me was also knowing that I was speaking like a producer who was, you know, saying anything to get a show on the air. Uh -huh. um, but it is, it has been uh, gratifying to see that, yes, that I think that that is accurate, that if you do a good character comedy and it's about realistic people and, you know, you don't break the rules for a laugh because you, you, you can't think of something and you sort of trust the actors to behave in consistent ways and everything, uh, that there is a value to that that's, you know, long lasting. And all the shows that I, you know, loved when I was a kid, like um, Mary Tyler Moore show or, you know, Cheers or The Odd Couple or whatever, that's the style of comedy that those have, I think. Do you think we will have a long running streaming show that then works 10 years from now? Is there any reason to imagine that won't be the case, that something will have that replayability or is there something different going on in production and creation? Well, um, I'll tell you maybe two thoughts. Uh, so when I went in to have my first marketing meeting uh, for Space Force with the Netflix team, one of them uh, said to me, let me just tell you what works on our platform. And then she described, uh, we're very, you know, uh, workplace comedies that have a, a large ensemble of quirky characters that, you know, have romantic <laughs> entanglements. And I realized she was just describing the office right back to me. <laughs> did, she, like, yeah. did she get that? Yeah, she copped to it eventually when, okay. I, when I called her out on it. So I do think that, you know, The Office was made for NBC and yet it worked very, very well on Netflix. So I'm not sure some of this might be just, you know, us analyzing stuff that doesn't need to be analyzed. But um, that's but a I podcast. Do think that, yeah. <laughs> but I do think that like um, people seem to be consuming the streaming shows a little bit differently. I feel like it's more like reading a book in the sense that you can pick it up and put it down whenever you want to. And, you know, you're going to you're definitely going to start at the beginning and go all the way through. And so the arc of the story is more important. And I put a lot of arc into the office, for instance. Uh, Jim and Pam. Yeah, it's, there's like a beginning and, a, you know, it's going in a particular direction, unlike, you know, for instance, The Simpsons, which is sort of a reset every right. episode. And uh, I felt that that was a way to involve a drama aspect to it. And for me personally, I love to have the different genres because I think that it's good for the comedy so that the audience doesn't really know, is this going to be a dramatic moment? Is this going to be a romantic moment? Is this a funny moment? They don't really know. So they're not braced for the comedy. Whereas like sometimes when you watch a show that is only comedy, the rhythm of bam, 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 joke after joke, you can kind of anticipate that the next line is going to be very similar to the one before it. Right. We started off by talking about the pandemic, but let me just bring it back. So how does, obviously you're doing a junket from your house. In terms of making TV for the next six months or a year or 18 months, how is that going to affect what you do and how you do it? Well, this is being debated like right now yep. uh, a lot because um, I 
want to make a season two for both these shows. Um, they haven't been picked up yet. I have writers working on plotting it out and we're and they're doing it. For, they're, they're on a Zoom, I assume. Yeah, we're doing yeah. it over Zoom. We started the upload room normal and then we had a transition when we went into quarantine into Zoom. And it's a bit challenging. It's different for sure. And when this is over, I want to go back to the normal way. But when you think about how to do production safely, I think there's a lot of a lot of issues and we don't really know. And I have certain actors, like for instance, I have William B. Davis on Upload who plays David Choke and He's, I think, 82 and, you know, a really funny and brilliant person. Uh, I'm always thinking, how do I do a scene with him safely? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't think it's been worked out yet. I, I'm assuming that the Directors Guild will, you know, like they nor- they're they the ones in charge of safety on a set when it comes to things like fireworks and things. And so you'll keep, you'll keep writing and plotting and then one day they'll, you'll get a go ahead says you can make a TV show again. But even then you might make accommodations and, and have treat different actors differently depending on who they are or what their health is like. Uh, that's what I'm Maybe. guessing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, um, you know, safety is very, obviously the, the, the paramount feature, you know, we're just doing entertainment shows. We're not, you know, I don't, You're not creating I don't know. A, a vaccine. Yeah, exactly. So we'll, I guess we'll wait and we'll be told, what the proper thing to do is and we'll try and and follow it i assume we're going to see the first rash of shows will be shows about people making shows in a pandemic there'll be a a slew of those sort of self-referential comedy shows yeah i mean i'm curious i feel like um i feel like that's going to wear thin pretty pretty fast but i don't know i mean um uh i think i'll be very happy to see something new that isn't uh on zoom I've enjoyed speaking with you on Zoom, Greg Daniels. Thank you for uh, your time. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. That was really fun. And I'm okay. sorry we didn't get to do it, but maybe next year, as they ne- say, next year in Austin. Next year in somewhere other than my house. Yeah, exactly. Bye, Greg. Thanks. Right, Take care. Well, thanks. You too. Thanks again to Greg Daniels. Very cool to talk to Greg Daniels. That is a bucket list item for me. I love talking with smart people who make cool TV shows. In a minute, we're going to hear from another smart person, Craig Jenkins, about live music. First, we want to hear from a sponsor. We'll be right back. Okay, and here's my conversation with Craig Jenkins. Today, I'm talking to Craig Jenkins. How's it going? He works for New York Magazine and Vulture. Welcome, Craig. I am doing okay. How are you? Uh, Taking it as it goes. (laughs) You are a pop music, pop culture expert. Want to talk to you about the state of music today, both the state of the music business and then sort of just what it means culturally right now to make music, to listen to music, to distribute music. So let's start off by talking about where are you consuming your music today and how is that different than, let's say, three months ago when you could walk out of your house? I spend a lot of time not just listening to music inside, but, you know, going out places with people, hanging out with friends, uh, going to concerts and stuff. It's all inside now. I'm spending a lot more time on Instagram than I used to, like mm-hmm. on live, especially. People are, you know, the live concerts have migrated to, you know, IG and stuff or, you know, proprietary websites, you know, owned by artists. Yeah, let's let's talk about that and, and where, where this is happening. Um, it seems to me that a lot of the attention has moved to Instagram, uh, a lot of IG live. Uh, there's some battles that we can talk about. Are you surprised that it's Instagram as opposed to Twitter or YouTube or something else where all this stuff is migrated? I am. Um, because, you know, people in the biz are often hawks for, you know, like sound quality and IG Live doesn't really allow you to have the greatest sound quality. But it is a really quick fix kind of solution to 
you know, getting a big crowd of people into one place without worrying about whether it's going to, you know, crash or whatever. So, I mean, I see the advantages and I see the disadvantages. So what kind of stuff can I see slash hear on Instagram and Instagram live? Well, give me, give me a sort of the poo poo menu platter. You can see artists performing, you know, in their homes. You can see Erica Badu. She has a weekly live series. Um, just random artists, you know, sort of jumping in and uh, playing a set, you know, scheduled weekly or just randomly. Um, you can see the beat battles, uh, which are usually every weekend on Saturday, thereabouts. Um, Tory Lanez has, you know, the Canadian rapper singer Tory Lanez has a series called Quarantine Radio that's kind of random. It doesn't happen all the time, but uh, it is basically like the back room of the internet right now, kind of like sort of like a makeshift strip club for people who can't really get out to those things right now. Quarantine Radio! Quarantine Radio! I think that we hit our limit today. We'll be back next time. It's 307,000 people in here. Goodbye! So there's, uh, there's options. Whatever, whatever suits your fancy. Is, is this the artist sort of doing this on their own? Is this Facebook slash Instagram setting something up for them? Or some, something, something in between? I think it's 80% artists just getting out there and you know doing the thing and then i think you know i think some people have sort of the backing of you know the official guys um the, the dj d nice who's been putting on you know the weekend uh dj sets um mark zuckerberg you know checked into the comments at one point and it was no accident that that was one of the you know largest streams up till then and there was no hiccups with it so i think they kind of have some little bit of collusion like you, you think when Mark drops by, it's it's not a coincidence. It's not hanging it's, out in Palo Alto randomly match. surfing. Yeah. <laughs> so explain what a beat battle is in in an Instagram setting. Um, well, you know, back in the day, DJs used to do performances and go back and forth on stage and stuff and like, you know, cut and play songs and stuff. Wait, wait, so, I'm yeah. going I'm to stop you there just in case someone doesn't even get that idea. So a DJ plays a song, plays a, a snippet of a song and then says top that. Well, back in the day, it was really, you know, performative kind of thing. So what you were doing on the turntables was the thing that you had at top. Mm -hmm. But now, you know, in the uh, in the Instagram sort of uh, rendition, you're, you're playing a song that you either produced or you recorded or you co-wrote, and then you're sending it to the other person, and they're trying to beat that. So 20 rounds of that, the crowd decides who wins. So the one that I saw, uh, or a bit of it was RZA and DJ Premier. This is, I guess, a week ago. Of course, I appreciate you for giving us the green light. And because you gave us the green light, we were able to make this. Oh, man. Yeah, that was crazy. So I tuned in, again, just sort of curiosity factor. And my thoughts were, oh, I would like to be somewhere where this music was spinning. This is kind of music that I appreciate. I'm not sure that I want to watch people essentially hitting play, uh, going back and forth. Also, RZA sounded terrible. The sound was 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 awful. But beyond my perception, what was the the reception sort of broadly? Did people like what they were seeing slash hearing? Did they not like it? People loved it, and I, I think that you know, consider the fact that most of the people who are watching are watching through their phones. Mm -hmm. And so won't be expecting, I guess, you know, great sound quality in the first place. I have to always remember that not everyone is a stickler for like high fidelity. Like some people really don't care if it's, you know, boombox sound or whatever. I think but most yeah, people like, don't care, right? Isn't that sort of <laughs> the lesson we learned, like going all the way back to the ringtone era taught us. <laughs> ringtone era and MP3s and and terribly compressed music, and and people seem <laughs> fine with it. Just trying to explain how the battle works. Is there a voting mechanism, or it's just people are getting applause virtually? Yeah, it's really like court of 
internet public opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes they're close and it's like people argue for days and sometimes one person is just clearly dominating and it's obvious to everyone that's watching. You wrote for Vulture in early March, um, sort of as South by, I think, had been canceled and the music business was starting to get a sense of like, oh, I don't think there are going to be any concerts for a little bit, that this was really going to be devastating for the music business because the music business for a working musician is you go on tour at this point. You, maybe you can make money online, but you're probably not. You have to go on tour. Is there any way that any, and most of the stuff that I've seen now on Instagram, on YouTube, is everyone doing stuff for free. Is there a way to actually make money doing this on the internet in the, for the foreseeable future? Well, Erica Badu's series, where she does weekend concerts on Sundays, she charges like a dollar. And I think is really kind of leading the charge to getting these things monetized. You know, there's people who put their, you know, cash app info up, like tip the DJ kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's tricky, you know, trying to figure out how to get that to pay at scale. Like, um, I don't really know that there's necessarily a future in that. I do know that there were some inventive people on the Instagram and who were figuring out ways to charge money in order to allow people access to, you know, secret content that was being streamed that nobody would, you know, that wouldn't be sanctioned officially by Instagram. Let's put it that way. Well, how does that mechanism work? How do I find a thing on Instagram that's not sanctioned by Instagram? I think that you PayPal a person specifically and then they invite you one by one. And that's all happening sort of through the comment, like, you know, hit me up over here on PayPal. The back room to the back room to the internet is definitely like porn. <laughs> Basically uh-huh. right now, like there's, there's been people streaming just like actual porn on the internet. Like the Times did a whole thing about it. <laughs> the, the nickname Demon Time where, you know, it's like yep, just yep. late night and everyone. Yeah, there. I read Taylor's piece as well. It seems rife with abuse in every sense of the word. Um, <laughs> farmers can be abused. Uh, the people can get ripped off. Um, that doesn't seem like it's a sustainable model. But also, you know, the idea of charging someone to watch a performance is admirable, and I can definitely see doing that for my favorite performer. But the premise of touring, right, is you do that night after night in different cities. And so if you're waiting to see Erica Badu or whomever, they come through town once a year, once every 18 months, you pay to see them. When they're performing night after night, it seems like that's going to run down pretty quickly. If I can see Erica Badu on my computer on Tuesday, it's the same thing as seeing her on Wednesday, and it seems like that won't be sustainable. Well, the challenge is making each night or each weekly thing a little bit different than the last, mm-hmm. you know, and it helps to have to that end, like a catalog that's big enough for you to be able to put on four to five, you know, live streaming events where you're playing for two hours. So Erica has done that by, you know, celebrating different records. Uh, ben Gibbard from Death Cab for Cutie, uh, he did an anniversary for a Death Cab album, like a set on YouTube where he mm-hmm. just like played the whole record in full. And so, like, there's avenues for that. So you, you don't you don't think people are going to get exhausted by this after a week or two weeks and go, all right, I've seen every single iteration of a Ben Gibbard show or an Erica Badu show, and even if I'm hardcore, um, I'm tapped out now. I've been trying to pay attention to a lot of the content, and there's too much stuff going on for me mm-hmm. to even catch. So, like, I imagine the person, you know, the casual, like, you know, listener is not keeping up with more than I am, <laughs> like... I don't think that you're going to run into a wall like that unless like this person is just perennially like online. Like, right. Okay. And I mean, you know, I do the, there's a stat from live nation from years ago that stuck in my head that basically said, you know, people go out to two shows a year. Uh, the average live nation customer was two shows a year. Maybe that's changed to, you know, a decimal point here or there. Um, but I'm assuming for most people, regular people, they went out 
couple times a year. And so asking them to pay once or twice a year seems feasible. I mean, you're also not charging $55 or $100 for these concert tickets, right? It's, it's pay what you want or it's a much smaller fee. Yeah. Um, the most that I've seen anyone charge for a performance is a dollar so far. So okay. Like, so I'm, I'm still trying to get my head around what's going to happen to the music business because we're in a streaming world where you have a lot of visibility. Um, if you own your own music and you have a deal with the Spotify's of the world, that could be okay. Uh, most people aren't. Most people have been told, go on tour. Touring seems like, well, it's, it's definitely stopped now. It is hard to imagine it reopening really in any way for months and months and maybe longer. And even if it's, even if, you know, you've got a red state where you're allowed to open up and tour, you, I don't know if you want to tour there. And then you're going to have cities like Los Angeles that I think have said they're going to be shut down for any kind of gathering through 2021. Not to start a Monday off on a bummer note. I'm just, try, <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out how working musicians are able to sustain themselves for, for months or, or, or longer. I really feel like everyone is at the mercy of the government figuring out the way to sort of subsidize people until they have, you know, job opportunities open back up. And I think specifically with musicians, I don't know that there's going to be that much touring places that, you know, open up early at all, because it really seems like a lot of the musicians that have been getting sick at the beginning of this, it's a function of having been playing in front of large crowds all over the country and, you know, traversing through different places and meeting you know, a thousand people in a month or whatever. Like, mm -hmm. I think that in the interest of everyone's health and safety, it's going to be a dub for concerts for a while, but, you know, we'll see what happens. So besides the sort of the, the novelties of the beat battles and individual artists doing interesting stuff, have you seen anyone else sort of innovate in terms of kinds of entertainment experiences you can provide on the internet using music? I think it's really a, a lot of people sort of like, you know how they make, you know, vegetarian burgers and stuff like, and you sort of like, are able to experience the ritual of the thing even without the like in the absence of the thing it's sort of like that you know the internet is trying to sort of like recreate the experience of being in a live show and so like there's not a lot of like innovation necessarily so much as a lot of like plugging the gap and like you know getting us back into like experiences we're missing i haven't seen anyone really like push ahead just yet how much of, of watching a beat battle or some other live performance is well I can't go to the concert, but I'm watching it here versus it's not just that they're performing and it's live. It's that there are variations on interactivity. I can maybe talk with someone in the comments or maybe the musician is reading the comments and responding back that way. Is that, is that a significant part of it or is that just sort of frosting? Oh yeah. The comments make the thing practically. Um, the, the comments are right. You know, there's always someone, uh, someone in there acting up, someone famous being really funny. Um, the Erica Badu, uh, her stream, she lets you bet not. She lets you uh, choose songs, so it's like a, you know, you, you vote on what's to be performed, and whoever in the crowd like you know has the advantage gets to hear the song they want to hear. Nerdy business question here. Normally, music and the internet both get along really well, and then they get along terribly when it comes to uh, lawyers and, and rights. Uh, and live music seems to be a real issue. Um, who's going to get paid for this stuff? Do you have the rights to do it? Are YouTube and Instagram just sort of like looking the other way? It seems hard to imagine them doing that at scale. I think there's a lot of looking the other way for it right now, or at least a lot of quietly watching what's happening mm -hmm. in order to figure out whether to you know put the kibosh on some stuff or to like support certain stuff. Because I assume when RZA is playing either something he recorded or samples or whatever it is, and then streaming that over Instagram, that there's a whole host of lawyers quietly noting that and saying, well, at some point we're going to charge someone for this. It's probably going to be Mark Zuckerberg. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I think that I think I think a lot of people are just being being merciful and not really saying anything, not pushing any litigation about records being played on streams and stuff. Because there's a pandemic and whatnot. And, and I think yeah. <laughs> also, um, the the beat battles, it helps to have the person in the room who was making the record involved. Maybe if someone who wasn't the artist and wasn't the co-writer or wasn't the producer who was playing that stuff, there'd be a bigger issue. But like, this is one of the people you'd be paying if, you know, this record was being played. So, so we're recording this in mid April, um, normally we'd be gearing up for a big summer concert season. That's gone. What's on your music agenda that you think is going to happen that you're looking forward to? You know, it's wide open. Um, whether the album is even dropping is wide open. Sometimes you get to a week before the release date and it's not there. It's a matter of, you know, finding out what's actually sturdy and what's going to stay on the calendar, what's the weird stuff that's happening on the internet. Uh, between those two, there's been enough excitement to uh, keep things afloat. But yeah, we'll see. Um, the sustainability of all this is in question as long as there's really just like a hole where the money is supposed to be. I don't really understand how like that can happen for... Right. So we've got novelty... But that doesn't replace the lack of money. Yeah. Novelty can't pay your mortgage. Yeah. And I mean, it's not even just the artist can't get paid. The people can't get paid necessarily to pay the artist to yep. play. So like And yeah, and all the people who would work. I mean, there's it's a whole ecosystem. Uh, and it all starts with you or me or people listening to this podcast being able to spend disposable income on things like this. Uh it's a real problem. I guess the good part is there's still a lot of creativity, a lot of good things to consume for free for now. It's kind of like the internet's always been. Yeah, well, um, I've always had this sort of weird, like, post-apocalyptic idea that, like, if there was ever just, like, all the money evaporated and it was just back to, like, you know, the Middle Ages or whatever, like, artists would be, like, you know, traveling bards again. And I feel like that's mm -hmm. kind of, like, what this is a little bit is, like, you know, as long as we're all stuck in one place, like, here's some entertainment for, you know, the, the dark times. So, like... Somebody with a funny hat and a loot walking yes, around. That's, that's what this is. Just grab her loot and walk city to city. <laughs> All right. Well, that's an entertaining image for me. I don't know if it's entertaining for Fiona Apple. Uh, any last tips if you want to jump into music? And by the way, you know what I've been hearing anecdotally is that uh, music consumption, audio consumption is way down in the pandemic and that everyone's spending their time watching TV, which kind of makes sense. But I, I kind of I kind of assuming that people do want some music back in their lives. Uh, what's your tip of the week if I want to jump in? What should I go check out right now? Um, right now, definitely go for Fiona Apple. Go for this guy Sam Hunt. He's this uh, artist who sort of mixes country and hip hop in a novel way. Uh, what else is out? Uh, counter's wide open. <laughs> Can I reliably follow you on Twitter to check out so I know when the next beat battle's coming? Uh, Craig S J at Twitter. Done. Craig, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Be well. Thanks again to Craig Jenkins. Thanks again to Greg Daniels. Thanks again to Jelani and Joel who produced this show and edited and bring it to you. Thanks again to the Vox Media Podcast sales team who bring you ads for this show so you can hear it for free. I really like making the show. I like that you guys like it. I like the fact that I'm going to get to talk to you in a week. See you soon.